meditation we go into the discovering or realizing the stillness of the mind, silence, power of silence. That's the latest Carlos uh, Castaneda power of silence. But silence is very powerful, you know, if you, if you realize it, and then you realize it more and more, then you have the very clear way of letting go of all the kind of agitating, irritating conditions that your mind might be producing. Or the, it is the agitation of sense experience, like being, having eyes, ears, nose, tongue, sensitive body, all this, and it's going to, certain things are going to happen to it, irritate it. It's just the way it is. In, the, in our minds, we create all kinds of thoughts, ideas, attitudes that irritate, get carried away with our anger or jealousy, fear, greed. Let's contemplate that in the Pali word you have the word aramana, which means the objects, what you what is objective to us. In reflecting on aramana, what is the objective experience and what is the subject? The subject is that which knows the object is the object. You can't you can't very well uh, find the subject. If you're the subject you don't need you need to look for yourself because you're already here. So that the subject not the the problem, nor is the object, but it's the confusion and ignorance of the human mind where we don't know the difference. We, we're always maybe looking for ourselves or trying to define ourselves or discover ourselves, find out who we are, or have very fixed views about what we are. The self-view is a very you know, insidious kind of thing we acquire from early age, from babyhood, self as I am a, a certain type of person. But the I am, so any conditioned self, any, any, any self that has a quality to it, of being good, bad, high, low, male or female, young or old, whatever, that is, that in meditation becomes the aramana rather than the subject. You're going to, you're, you're being the true subject and recognizing the aramana or the object, which is the views you have, or the objects in the mind rather than you grasping them and thinking that that's what the subject is. What you really are is a, a personality, a, a good person, a bad person, whatever views you might 
habitually tend to be attached to. With meditation, when you're, you're, you're detaching from those views, you can see them. They disappear, all views, all aramana cease. There's a silence then, and if you're not creating in your mind any problems, then the mind is, is silent, even though your eyes still see and ears still hear. You're not creating anything, uh, any reactions out of greed, hatred, and delusion. You may respond to situations appropriately, but that's not from greed, hatred, and delusion. That's from mindfulness and wisdom. So you can still respond to a situation. You aren't incapable when you're mindful and wise. Doesn't mean you're incapable of responding to a, a need or a situation, whatever, but it, it means that you can respond appropriately and suitably to time and place. No longer just out of fear or habit or reaction. When we're just conditioned creatures, then we react to things. We're the Pavlovian dogs. We're the puppets on the string. So we just react. When somebody praises us, we happy. When somebody criticizes, we are depressed. We win a million pounds, we're happy. We lose a million pounds, we're depressed. We're the, we're, that's the reaction, isn't it? Response is something else. Praise, uh, somebody praises, we can respond to praise, which is appropriate to time and place, it's not a reaction. Somebody criticizes us, we can respond to that criticism appropriately. If we inherit, uh, win a million pounds, we can respond to that. And if we lose a million pounds, we can respond to the loss, to losing, and the response then is is an appropriate action or, or non-action in regards to the experiences of life. Where a reaction is, is a conditioning. We react just according to uh, pleasure and pain. Success and failure. Uh, I oftentimes use the sound of silence, what I call the sound of silence, the kind of inner ringing, if you can uh, listen kind of to a high pitch ring in your head or ears. Because if you're really, if you begin to be aware of this, the sound of silence, or the nada, or the nada, then that helps you, that gives you a kind of reference point. It's, a, it's rather high-pitched and, and continuous. It's, it's, some people hear different, different ones and always try to listen to the, to the highest. If you get a low one or a middle one, always aim for the higher one. And 
is to, to sustain your attention, to recognize that the sound of silence helps as a, as a as a skillful means for meditation. When you reflect on it, you can hear, you can you can you can be aware of that inner ringing. It's not because you have tinnitus or an ear infection. It's normal. Everyone is that if you're so ordinary that people don't like something that is so ever present that we don't notice it. Until somebody points it out. If you're caught up with all the IMs, then you can't, you're no longer aware of it. Oh, what should I do? That person said that to me and it wasn't fair and blah, 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 blah. And you're lost in the realm of I am again. Going around with, with the, yourself. All the injustices, unfairnesses, fascinations, uh, and worldly impressions and ambitions and fears and all this. And you're caught up in, the, in what we call the samsara vata or the cycles of, of samsara. Samsara always is getting caught in the aramanas. You, you develop habits with the aramanas and something, something impinges and you just react like the Pavlovian dog, the bell rings, the dog salivates. Even when there's nothing to salivate over. You know, one just salivates. You notice how uh, conditioned uh, human beings really are. You know, some, somebody says something, a certain word, and one's reaction is immediate. If we're uh, saying we're, if we're, if we like to be praised, and somebody says, "Oh, better be somebody your marvelous partner," then the, the reaction is, "Oh, I'm not pretty." <laughs> 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 but delight at being praised, but also one doesn't want to, you know, culturally one doesn't go around agreeing. It's a reaction, isn't it? A kind of modesty <coughs> might be appropriate, it might be an even a good response, but it can also be just a reaction. When the weather, uh, not like here in Britain, we always have a lot of, of uh, experience with weather. Because the, the, as we all know, the climate is, you never know from one moment to the other what exactly you're going to get. And so, there's a, uh, it's just say, talk about, no, it's raining, or these are ways of, one say when you, if you're just meeting people, and this is a kind of just saying something, just say uh, hello. They say, oh, it's raining again. You know, so a kind of grumble is, is, a, is a way that says, is a, is a group of way to recognize somebody's presence, isn't it? To grumble about the weather is, it doesn't mean that you're really grumbling or negative, but it means that in, in this country, it's a way of, of recognizing somebody else's presence. Oh, it's raining again. 
Leave can be cultural responses. I remember going to to uh, in, in America and in here, we would always ask, "How are you?" And I was asking about each other's health. How are you? Then you describe usually you say, "You hope everyone's fine." Usually you don't really want to know. Somebody then really thinks you really want to know, so then they they go start going into detail about their health. <laughs> but uh, how are you really means in, in, in this country doesn't just a kind of recognition of here you are, here we are. You know, it's a, a, it doesn't you know that one is all that eager to find out how, how you really are. It, it doesn't mean uh, that we don't care how you are either, but it means what? Just a, a cultural, uh, accepted cultural reaction to somebody's coming to us. In, uh, in Malaysia, when I lived in Malaysia, they are always asking, uh, have you eaten yet? And I used to think, why do they always want to know about eating? <laughs> <laughs> why do they always want to know about eating? And so I then get confused, and I realized that have you eaten yet is, is how are you in Malaysia? <laughs> In Thailand, I remember monks say, I'd, I'd come to a monastery and they'd say, Oh, have you come yet in Thai? What a stupid question, of course, I'm here. <laughs> but then, have you come yet? Is the same as how are you and have you eaten yet? It's a, these are cultural uh, ways of just recognizing somebody else's uh, presence. So language and the cultural patterns can be, and we can respond appropriately when we understand how, how it is. Sound of silence is, it helps us to, to, to say, let go of things. Because if we develop a, a, a practice around the sound of silence, using that as a, as a, something to reflect on, to, to recognize, then we can, we can, uh, we can always remember to, to, to uh, concentrate on that inner self. And that helps us to kind of let go of, of just being caught up in, the, in emotional reactions and being whirled away by fears and desires. You, you, you need something like the breath or the sound of silence, these kind of natural uh, objects that we can use help us to, to ground ourselves, to, to, to center ourselves, to bring ourselves to the present moment. If we don't do this, then we tend the mind can just go on and on and on and on and on with all the self-views, to being really neurotic or obsessed totally obsessed with, with wrong views about yourself and everything else. Your mind just gets carried away. But as soon as you bring attention just to the breathing of your body or the sound of silence, or just to 
just to the more and more as you as you develop the practice of meditation, just you you you, you know just how to be be here and now with the way it is. But until you you really appreciate that and really understand understand that, realize that, then we have to use skillful means to bring our attention to the here and now. With breathing isn't doesn't take on a strongly doesn't isn't a highly personal uh, function of our body that we don't we, the breath of our body is not particularly something that that arouses vanity or feelings of me and mine. Breathing is just whether I breathe better than you or you breathe better than I do or men breathe better than women. Americans are better breathers than the British. Well, they're ridiculous. We don't even think of it. To make it we can make jokes about it. But breathing is breathing. Who has to know whether someone is breathing any better than somebody else? So that breathing is, is what the body is doing. And you're not thinking, I have to breathe. The body breathes. Whether you're, if you're crazy, you're still breathing. Because start getting mad, you're breathing. When you're asleep, you're breathing. When you're drunk, you're breathing. When you're high on drugs, when you're normal, when you're mindful, when, when you're healthy or sick, breathing is breathing. And it's the health sometimes effect. Sometimes the breathing is can be quite difficult, like with asthma. They just do ordinary breathing. Something that we can easily recognize too, as some people find it difficult to, to recognize the sound of silence. Most human beings can, can find their own breath. So the breath is, is, is a very uh, skillful means to bring attention to the, to the moment, the way it is. Whatever you think you are at this moment, or how good, or how bad, or how advanced, or how backward, or whatever, the breathing is just this way. Breathing is breathing. And if you stay with your breath more and more, then the, then the uh, tendency to fly off with your thoughts, views, and opinions will diminish more, just with the way it is. Breathing of the body and the sound of silence. I sometimes like to just sit and just re remember, reflect that being born in a human body feels like this, just sitting here. Say the, the, try to sit in good posture and just, just get a, uh, just bring your attention to the way the body feels as a whole body. From the top of the head to the sole of the feet, sitting. It feels like this, not that it has to feel good or bad or whatever. There's no, there's no word or perception to use for how it feels, but it's this way. So that you're just aware of, of the way the body is. One thing, it, 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 it feels uh, in this kind of weather, quite warm. There's warmth or heat. 
It feels why we're not complaining about the heat. We want the other one, but just recognize it feels like this. Reflection in this way, we may, we find the mind kind of opening and, and accepting the way it is, rather than always looking for something else, or just being caught up in the momentum of habit. Because when the way things are, as they are, the silence of the mind, the true nature of things, there's nothing really wrong. And so we can bear with the, the changing conditions, with the aramanas that arise and cease and change. That we can endure in both their pleasant and unpleasant aspects. But what is real human sorrow and despair is our reactive, being caught in reactions and fears and desires, whirled away with wrong views and, and uh, false ideas that only take us to despair, anguish, grief. So now just listen, try to listen, try to see if you can detect the sound of silence, the louder. High pitch almost sounds like an electric, electronic sound almost. Not the airplane. <laughs>
And by sustaining your attention on the sound of silence, you can uh, really uh, say that which is rather fraught or, say, strong emotions of the moment. And actually, if you, if, you, if you turn to the sound of silence, say, for account of chance, sometimes you can't even remember what, what it was you were so upset about ten seconds before. Helps you to, it helps to, to really, uh, say, let go in a very skillful way. Not to be, you, can, you can remember what it was, but the strong, like you practice with this, and the kind of strong emotional uh, reactions are no longer followed, so that, that that side starts fading away. So there's more clarity, mental clarity, rather than strong emotional reactions that you're indulging in or trying to suppress. Like trying to suppress is, is another extreme, trying to get rid of it. So with this practice, it's not a matter of getting rid, not to destroy or annihilate, but to recognize and then to use some uh, skillful means to turn away from a very strong feeling or anger or they always say if you're really angry count to ten I remember hearing that when I was a child my mother count to ten before you say anything if you're angry it helps too but if you use the sound of silence and count to ten it's even better So you prevent yourself from saying things that you have to apologize for later. You spend the evening feeling guilty about. Now these are ways of training the mind, of learning how to... Because we, we are sensitive creatures and we do have these habits and we do get angry and upset. And we live in a society that that is, uh, has a lot of stress in it. People feel stressed by modern life. And there's a lot of negativity, a lot of confusion. Talking to somebody, uh, somebody came from Poland recently, I don't know what to telling you all about, the confusion that reigns in uh, Eastern Europe and Moscow these days, and the, and the kind of communist uh, uh, monster kind of dying away and, and the hopes and expectations and the economic problems and the, at least with a, with a strong tyranny there's a kind of certainty about it and it may be horrible but it's a certain certain it's certainly horrible and it's not uncertainly horrible when, when, it, when even that starts going, then, then there's all possibilities. Un, more uncer uncertainty is really a very frightening mental state for most human beings, isn't it? Not being quite sure, not being certain, not knowing is what we most dread. With my right foot, I remember this, this, this problem is my... my Swollen right foot, which was nobody's been able to give a truly accurate diagnosis for 
for the past 25 years, this foot has been troublesome due to a, to a coral infection. Swimming on coral reefs years ago before I was a monk. People want to, and I want, I've always wanted to have, be able to call it something or other. Because the uncertainty was frustrating. Not to know what to do, say, swollen foot. Didn't seem to be, you know, in our term, we like scientific, ac scientific accuracy. Swollen foot isn't good enough, is it? So I give it a, a Latin, lymphodemia. It means swollen. <laughs> but it sounds more like an accurate scientific uh, diagnosis. What's wrong with it? Lymphodemia. So it says, better to have lymphodemia than lymphomania. <laughs> Lymphodemia, and then they found out that it's uh, something, <laughs> something even, it wasn't even lymphodemia, but at least for a few years I got away with lymphodemia. But uncertainty, not having a name. And this is like in, in actually in Buddhist meditation. When you, when you develop a more subtle practice, that uncertainty is, is, uh, is, is your practice. It's the I don't know, the not knowing, the uncertainty of the mind that we really begin to open to with, with the sound of silence, the breath, the cessation, in the Four Noble Truths, the Third Noble Truth of cessation, all of this cessation the ending, the uncertainty, and the despair of life is used in Buddhist meditation in a very direct way. That whole mental state, that whole mental experience of uncertainty, unsurety, despair is a kind of, is, is another one. There's a lot of despair in our human experience, but we we resist it, or we, 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 we dread it, despair and hopelessness. And yet in, in meditation, despair is, is a sign that we actually use. Because when you're feeling totally helpless, hopeless, despairing, that, and, you, and you can reflect on the mood you're in, you can reflect on that, you'll realize the, the, the power of silence, back to Carlos Castaneda. The power of the silence. Teaching monks or nuns for years, you can see that you're, you're in close contact over a long period of time where you, you, you're living together in a certain way, so you can see uh, obviously changes and development. But this this particular way it gets subtle to where uh, you, you can see so many people really want to become something else. By becoming a monk or a or a nun they they really they're they're 
their intention is to become somebody else or attain some state that they want or become an enlightened person. These kind of subtle delusions of the mind are one of the great uh, problems of the, of the religious life because language itself is so, is so deluding to become, to realize Nibbana, I want to realize Nibbana, I want to attain Nibbana, even though people talk like this. I want to become an Arahant, on and on like this. Is, and this whole way of thinking, you see, is, is based on the self-delusion. So, so even then, after years of practice, you don't become what you like to become, and then you feel despair. So, so a lot of the monks, nuns, they go through this terrible despair where they tried so hard to become something else, and they're always failing at it. Then, but it, to get them to look and accept and reuse the experience of despair, sometimes they won't do it. Some leave at that time. find hope in something else, rather than there and, and, and re reflect on hopelessness. Hopelessness is not the ultimate truth, but it is a condition of the mind that if we accept it and see it and know it rather than react to it, then, then we can let go of the very cause that binds us to the becoming process. We're always trying to become happier because we don't want despair or hopelessness or, or the negative side. There's the desire to always get something or get rid of something or become something. This is, so, this is what's driving people all the time, obsessing their minds. As soon as they feel despair, it's personal, I should be happy, I should be uh, somebody who should be, I should be something other than what I am. Remember in Switzerland one time a woman came and said, Arjun Samita, what can I do about depression? I said, well, what's wrong with depression? He says, well, I get depressed, and I shouldn't, you know. I think, you shouldn't be depressed, I said. Sometimes life's depressing. It's the way it is. Sometimes things are just, uh, just depressing. And if you can see that, not, it's, it's only suffering when you think you're depressed and you shouldn't be. So reflecting on the way things are is not trying to paint a pretty world of positive thinking and, and happiness, but it's, it's the ability for the mind to be free of inadequate reactions to life's experiences or to the aramana. 
that which impinges on us during this lifetime within this form, sensitive form. If we train ourselves, monks, we train ourselves to to really watch the heart. So that say if I say this is a venerable very devil, who some of you probably remember. <laughs> some of you probably don't haven't met he's been in New Zealand for the for the past five years. He's the he's the he's uh, started a monastery outside of Wellington. Very nice place. Forest monastery uh, in, the, in the countryside outside of Wellington. and I were together in Dajan in Renovokini Ka, also in uh, Thailand. And Renovokini Ka and Ananda came with me to England 12 years ago. And we practiced, the advice should say something to upset your devil right now, then if he's practicing right, he watches his heart. Rear Dumbo, you're a rotten egg. And so then he's being criticized and put down in public. Then he can say, You think I'm a rotten egg, or you're a rotten egg. But if he's really practicing, then he, he can he looks at the feeling of being humiliated or embarrassed or this is, this is a, a way of really observing the feeling, the anguish, or they wouldn't say that I'm just being facetious with that, but they when something really unfortunate happens in life, or something, this, uh, you know, somebody you had great uh, respect for disappoints you, or whatever. You train yourself to really look at the feeling of it. And you find out you can bear that feeling. And, and, and you sustain your attention on the feeling of disappointment or disillusionment. That's real practice, learning to use life's experiences uh, to, to train yourself. They've been having uh, problems in Bath with the Buddhist society there. So, now, it's interesting, the other day a woman was, who was involved with this, she said, I'm really disappointed. With, uh, I, thought a, I thought a small little society in, in a place like wouldn't have all the problems that the Buddhist society in London has. But it seems to have more problems. And I, I think I'd just like to go off and practice alone and not have to be bothered with these societies. Disappointed. This is, this is real practice of the way the world is. Buddhist society is everywhere. Eccleston Square, Bath, or Newcastle, there's always going to be this element of somebody, some, 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 some crisis is going to take place, or some disappointment. They're not going to be what, what they should be, or what we are ideal of Buddhists should be. It doesn't matter because we're using, we're seeing the Dhamma by looking at our own feeling of frustration or disappointment or disillusionment. 
this, this is really helpful to, to use live situations, which we don't have all that much control over. Much as we try to make it, in, say, the monastery, try to, to uh, you know, our intentions in the in a monastery to be good monks and to practice well and be good examples and all that, our intentions are good. But inevitably, somebody gets disillusioned with us. No matter how how good our intentions are, somebody's going to find something that causes them to be too much shocked. People get very upset over all kinds of things. Eat and drinks coffee. Others made of drinks coffee. This or eats uh, McDonald's hamburgers. So the weekend we're given a whole big box of McDonald's hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've been on this diet, low calorie diet for the past month of salads. And McDonald's hamburgers, if you've been on salads for a month, <laughs> 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 and if you're an American, McDonald's hamburgers have the most, I can be the most delicious, <laughs> most desirable thing you can imagine. I noticed some of the monks we used to stay disgusted at these McDonald's hamburgers because they're, they're destroying the rainforests in Brazil <laughs> <laughs> to grow cattle to make hamburgers for McDonald's. So there's this idealism. Uh, we shouldn't touch McDonald's hamburgers because they're destroying the rainforest in Brazil to feed the cattle to make the hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> so then they see me eating the McDonald's hamburgers. <laughs> and then they think, I've tomatoes responsible for the destruction of the rainforest. <laughs> Another disillusionment. Another, another idol of hope holding a crash off the So that this, that these are, this life is, is like this. There's people, uh, you know, our intentions are to, to be good and to do the right thing, but we're not always going to live up to everyone's expectations or high standards. So that's not the point. You know, it's really horrible to think we have to try to please or live up to the high standards that everyone has, because it would be just, it's a horrible state of mind to have to spend your life trying to make other, to please other people all the time. But our intention then is to to do the good, refrain from doing the bad, and to be mindful, to develop this reflective mind on Dhamma, to see Dhamma. And then we can use life when people become disappointed because they think you're a, a monster who's destroying the rainforest in Brazil. <coughs> and 
And then you can watch your mind when somebody accuses you of being a monster after you've, you've been trying to be a saint for all these years. Somebody says you're a monster. And something in you thinks it's not fair. <laughs> and you listen to that and watch that. So that you, these things fade in your mind. And use the sound of silence, bring your attention to the way it is, the breath, the sound of silence, the feeling, even the, the feeling of your, of your heart in the state of anguish or feeling of disappointment or feeling that things aren't fair or you've been misunderstood or whatever. So that that very feeling in the heart is recognized, not judged, not suppressed, not indulged in, Recognize for what it is. It's this way, and it's impermanent, and it ceases. And so more and more you realize that you abide in the silence of the mind. More and more one can really abide in the, in the all-pervading silence that gives full perspective from the position we're in, in this, in this very, in this experience of birth in life, in the, in the human form. Now this is a reflection for you, to, for you to, to uh, Contemplate, and just this life is like this. Society, Britain is like this. It's this uh, where the Buddhist society is like this. Ajahn Sumedho is like this. And whatever, whatever way, whatever you know, perception you have of me, at least you can be aware of it as a perception. What, what I. How one has a, as one believes one's perception as being somebody. But actually, any perception we have of somebody is, is a perception of it, it's not there. Any perception we have of somebody is, is a perception of it, it's not there. So that the more we, we, we realize the name, that perception arises and ceases in the mind, we, we start creating or believing in the perceptions as being more than what they are. We're not denying the perceptions and saying they're bad or wrong or we shouldn't have any perceptions, but we're recognizing with wisdom the limitation of what perception really is. We're not expecting it to be more or, or, or demand of our ability to perceive to be something that it cannot really be. It is the way it is. <clears throat> so it's an intelligent function of our mind. If we use it with wisdom, then it's liberating. It's very difficult, isn't it, when you, when you have strong views about somebody, to be able to just see that the, the views are perceptions that arise and cease in the mind. Is it you if somebody if somebody you really don't like or somebody you really really are in love with somebody you really infatuated with or somebody you really hate 
the emotions are so strong, easier to be more, they would neutral people that don't arouse particular strong feelings. You can see that, that Joe Brown is a perception of the mind. But when it comes to our, our ones we are infatuated with, the ones that we really hate, then it's the strong emotional charging of that perception, the whole proliferation that takes place. It's hard to get a perspective on it. So with that, we can use the sound of silence more and more to, to remember that, not to just be caught up in the passion of the moment and the prejudice or the bias without putting it into, some, at least trying to put it in, the, in proper perspective as, as for what it really is. And the Buddha then is a, the one who knows, that teaches all that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing. So I'll end the formal talk on this at this time. And those who have to catch trains and whatnot take this time to leave. For those who are not in any hurry, then we can stay, we can have questions and sound of silence. When I, when I practice with that, it seems like very head-centered. How can one use that and get a more feeling of the heart? I think that also you can bring the attention more to it. Because you're just using it as a, as a kind of grounding means, you know, and to, to, to bring attention to the body, because of what you, in uh, Gayama Pasana, the insight into the nature of the body, you need to bring the body into consciousness, and feeling, so, and that is, is just a, is a way of concentrating the mind into, to, uh, to let go of things, so that you know, say you're more, you can just be with, the, say, the feeling, the thing that's in your heart. Because I try to concentrate more here on the, on the heart area, 
We still refer to the sound of Rav. Because one can, can do one, you know, even though one like more or less perceives it in the, in the head, it can even be there. It's a, a kind of background. Also, to recognize your intention for using it. Meditation takes such total honesty that if you that you if you're just trying to get rid of things, it doesn't it's not gonna work. You're just trying to suppress. And therefore it, with meditation it's, it's a sense of, of recognizing, realizing, and then turning to something. Not out of aversion to to say anger or or some mental state, but recognizing it and then uh, realizing it for what it is, and then we can turn to something which isn't a a, a out of aversion to the previous thing, but it's just a turning away from from the condition. Which can be, we all probably miss a fairly 
uh, strong emotions. You, you, you can actually attach to the more negative things than the more positive things. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that becomes even more powerful than it would be in normal life when you don't meditate and action things. Um, so perhaps that's the obsession. But, uh, <laughs> if it goes all the way circles, then you can tap up there. Well, then, you see, the, the, the problem, one of the problems is that we come from a very psychologically oriented society where we can analyze these states, make a lot out of them, and uh, they become very kind of like personal. And that's the danger, is that then we, if when we say a lot in meditation is the kind of box opens up and all the things come out, then uh, maybe very unpleasant negative things will will you you'll be will come into your consciousness that you didn't have before. And then if you're if you're interpreting that from a self view, then it can be really frightening and, and terrible. Or you can become, you know, very obsessed about these these states as Analyzing them and, and dwelling a lot on them, becoming fascinated by them, or whatever. But the important reflection isn't on on them as being my mental states, but as impermanent. Yeah. See, that's that's the whole that's the important reflection on them, not on the, on taking them as kind of personal problems anymore, but recognizing their true nature, because, <clears throat> you know, whatever they are, they are impermanent. Where if, you, if you're coming from the personality view, I have this terrible anger, uh, or something like that, then that is, then that tends to, you tend to assume that, you, that you're somebody who has it as a kind of continuous assumption in your mind. Because that's the way it seems, you know, I have this kind of latent or repressed tendency. And, and that means like, it, it's, you've got it kind of permanently, day and night, in a continuous way. But actually, any state comes and goes. I mean, it, 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 it's not, it, it's what it is in the moment, and, then it, and, and it's no more than that. When you see it as Dhamma, then, then you're seeing it always in the, in the right way. Where from the self-view, it's always more than what it is. Something else is so, and, and, and if it's strong or frightening or very desirable or whatever, then it becomes huge, massive kind of thing. But as it's seen through the wisdom eye, then it, it is, you're not denying it in any way, or you're not, uh, you're, you're just seeing it clearly for, for what it, exactly what it is. Things are exactly what they are. And they're impermanent. What arises ceases. And in that, then you're bringing more attention to the ending of it, the cessation of it, rather than, than thinking about it a lot, analyzing it from the personality view. And that's the, that's the secret of the uh, freedom from suffering, is to to realize the cessation of, of conditions in your mind. Because that's why, like in the personality view, 
you're, you're always being reborn again in, with your ideas and your assumptions and, and, and that. But in, in the, when, when there's no self, then these passions or conditions or whatever that arise cease, and you're aware of their ending rather than just being uh, reacting to their arising. Being, being, being awake, 
And when you when you take refuge in Buddha, then that can be, you know, from a ignorant mind, really a kind of belief taking refuge in some benevolent external force, like a god, a protective father or whatever, but uh, from the Gnostic angle, or the true Buddhist position, is being, the refuge is in being awake, like, and that's what Buddha is, the awake, that which is awake and knowing. So does that mean that ultimately there would be no separation between subject and observer? I mean, so that, but, and would that mean that no longer always that a chattering bothers the, that developed in human being? Or, or would that chattering continue even though there was no separation? Well, it, if it continues, you just know it for what it is. It's like the birds or the neighbors talking in, on the other side of the fence. And then, because the more mindful you are, the more you, then then your karma that arises in the present, then you let it, you're letting it cease. So you're not creating new karma from the old. The more and more your, your mind abides in the in that emptiness of clarity and intelligence, rather than just endlessly going on with the thoughts and views, obsessions of the mind. Like a problem when I first started uh, meditating 25 years ago, my mind was just. Uh, was a non, was a most obsessed, just thinking, was just an obsessed thinker. I couldn't imagine a silent mind. It just seemed so an impossibility. A mind without thoughts, going on and on and on. Uh, and, and then, but as the practice began to take its effect more and more, one could experience moments, very brief moments of, of silence or flashes at first and then more and more as the practice became stronger then longer periods of silence and, and reflection and clarity became to, to where the, the total trust in that and then in that practice developed and you really saw how to do it you know path became very clear. At first, the first year, I remember, I had, I had insight, but the, the habit tendencies were so strong, it took, you know, it, I, it took a while to, to just wear out a lot of that, just the obsessive thinking. And the, the, and the uh, I remember with anatta, no self, the, the, when your mind is so obsessed with yourself and your own thoughts and anatta seems impossible and then one day I remember suddenly I just suddenly I realized what anatta meant and it was, it was like it was such a relief because, because my suffering in life had been from the view that all these thoughts and that were me and all these memories and 
and these fears that I was somebody and that I wasn't somebody that I wanted to be, I was somebody I didn't want to be. And that and a lot of resentments and bitterness from the past. And when I saw all that is just an instant to come out time is I was oh if I only could have known this before, you know. What a wonderful thing. I would have I wouldn't have, because I realized I've made so much suffering out of nothing, really. Because my life hasn't been, you know, particularly, uh, it's not that I've had been treated badly or been unfairly treated or that, you know, I can't, I don't have any real uh, life experience, very few experiences with life that I feel I've been really just totally unfairly treated. But, the, uh, just the, the self-view and the uh, self-criticism and the guilt and all that is just take over the consciousness and I'd make myself miserable over nothing. And I suddenly realized I was miserable over nothing. But before I was miserable over, it all seemed so important. But then, after that, I still had to, the, the habit was still there, it was still strong, but from that, the inside actually breaks the, the pattern, the cycle, a chink or a cut through, the, the cycle gets cut, and, but it, and so its strength starts fading out. It's not like it suddenly just disappears, but it, the, the force and the strength uh, has been uh, dissipated through mindfulness, wisdom. And then eventually they go, and they really cease. In mindfulness, when there's hardly any thought, you start suppressing or anything. Now, as with mindfulness, you're, you're aware of things. If you're, you can suppress when you're concentrated. But, and, and then you recognize your intention if you're trying to, uh, if, you're, if you're just trying to, to uh, get rid of something or reject something something, but then, then, then the result is that there's going to be a lot of suffering in that. Whatever you're suppressing is going to bring some kind of despair into your mind. So you see, in mindfulness of the present moment, that sometimes is hardly any thought. Right. Yeah. And it's just natural. It's just natural. It's the way it is. And then you go through a period where you think, this is very much, this is what I was expecting. I was expecting meditation to 
put me in a kind of continuous state of bliss where you're just floating up on cloud seven. And then you think of this very much. So, <laughs> so then one, one can even be, you know, feel quite disappointed with the holy life. I wanted something more than I was, I was expecting something more than this. But, or, but then, as you let go of that, that desire to get high, or have, or have refinement, because like we're reflecting on, on the way it is, having a body, a body like this. You see, we're in a position where we can't stay on a, on a high, refined level for very long, because of the nature of the body. We have to deal with coarse bodily functions and, and just to keep the body, you know, from being too miserable or painful. So that, that, that we can get mentally very refined. And that's what is, is very, you know, very, if you experience very refined mental states, then one has a great desire for them. And, uh, and one then wants to suppress the course and, and, and concentrate on these, on these more subtle and refined mental states. But with reflection on dogma, you see, you're recognizing, having been born as a human being, we've got to deal with, with life like this, having a body. And, and that means that they accept the, the body for what it is, not just to suppress it out of the mind. And, and just ignore it, but to recognize the, that this is the human realm, born into this realm, the sensitive realm, with a, with a body, a material body, is like this, and it feels pain, it feels hungry, it feels heat, it feels cold. You can't sit very long without it feeling some kind of discomfort, and uh, it gets hungry, and on and on like this, so that you're that these things you can suppress by developing strong concentration on more refined mental states. But then, but then you, then you become someone who, who wants this refinement and really feels very kind of uh, disgust and aversion to the course of realm. But with real mindfulness and wisdom, you don't, you don't have that. You don't, your, your mind is embracing the totality. It is the totality of everything, rather than just the, the finest of everything. It is like the Buddha mind, is the totality, it's everything. The course, in the course to the refined, where the Brahma realm is where you've got the finest, the best of everything. Which means that the worst of everything, you can only, only feel disgust and aversion to. But in the Buddha mind, the worst and the best are conditions that arise and cease. So that's the transcendence, you see, from suffering. And, and recognizing in this human form, so much of our life, has to, we have to accept the fact that our life is going to be dealing with the, the uh, taking care of, of this body. And as you get older, you know, the body 
and with its sicknesses, its age, and, and death, and, and this is this is part. This is uh, these are uh, this is our karma having been born in this in this realm. So with with Buddha, with the Buddha mind, then this is then it's all right. There's nothing wrong with it, with the, with the human realm or the material body. But if you're very attached to refined mental states, then you then you feel aversion or fear or threatened by the, the coarser conditions. But in the Buddha mind, there's, no, there's nothing to be, because it's it's all it's all there. And there's not you know, saying I only want the best, the worst, the best. Good, bad, praise and blame, the whole lot are numbers, rather than the positions we take on life. Uh, you, you usually find, though, that with the, uh, you know, the arising of a thought, the arising of a preconceived idea, arise kind of simultaneously, almost, you know? Um, and I wonder if there's any kind of... Uh, you know, definition between the two are, are they? You know, separate parts of of uh, of one, or or is it just a, a single thought? You know, you know the, the preconceived idea and the uh, you know the kind of idea of doing it or whatever. Well, that's like the this is where with the reflection on the on feeling. Like your thoughts, and and then uh, then there's bodily feeling. So if if you're just trying to work with thought alone, thought moves too fast. So the, one needs to be aware of the the feeling that that is producing the thoughts. Like you might like say with anger, there's heat. There's a lot of heat in the body. Heat arousing. The thoughts then can you blast it so and so. Then you, if you try to just stop the thought or just you know, then you then you still got the heat. So if you go to the heat and the mood, say in the heart or in your guts, wherever you're feeling it, then and then abide there and patient and accept that, then then the, then the condition will cease. You can also reflect on thought, like like I've been doing with I am a human being, or more deliberate thinking, uh, just to see the thought as arising and ceasing. But but say habitual thought is very fast and it, and it proliferates and it associates with other, so it goes one thing to another. So we can only kind of just stop it. And then we get averse, but then when we're just stopping thinking, then it starts again, then we feel angry with ourselves for thinking, and we're trying to stop thinking. And, and, but if, you, so if you're just trying to suppress thought, it doesn't work. But if you go to, if you use the, the feeling, bodily feeling, and reflect on it, and then, then then investigate thought by thinking, by intentionally thinking, and recognizing the space around thought, that, that thought is, uh, so that then you have, a, you have a perspective on thought, 
you're, you're no longer a thought. Thoughts come and go in your mind. Say, so until you do this, you tend to think that you are these perceptions. No, you've got a whole list, maybe, of perceptions that you identify with and believe you are. And this way you're investigating that. And you think that those perceptions are conditioned into your mind, they arise and cease, and that they're not what you are. But the, the uh, uh, bodily feeling is Vedanāna-pasana, it's called, it's insight into Vedana or feeling is very... It's because the body is so sensitive, it's always feeling something. And, it's all, and, and a, lot of it, a lot of bodily feeling is quite neutral. And it needn't be pleasure or painful, but neutral. It's like a feeling of of your clothes touching your skin or just uh, the heat of your body which may not be noticeable until you really look at it, recognize it or, or the um, way your one leg touches the other the neutral feeling or just the, the in your heart area or in your solar plexus you have maybe feeling of tension like if you notice when you're frightened or anxious there's a lot of tension here in the solar plexus that you may not even be aware of a lot of people aren't aware of it they've got this kind of strong tension in their in their guts and they're not, they're not even aware of it but if, if you start pointing it out and they begin to recognize it because we have we're such conditioned creatures, conditioned creatures that there's certain things we, we, we recognize, certain things, even quite obvious things, we don't even know because we, we don't even, we've never even thought of them yet or haven't any perceptions of them. So like, like in meditation, more and more your, your, your wisdom faculties developing so that your ability, you know, your and your sensitivity is increasing. So you're learning to look at things that before you just weren't even aware of or had just suppressed and, and had never really, really uh, been aware of before or recognized as being anything. It's like when you get used to something, you, you, you think that's normal. And, uh, and people like what they're used to. Until they 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 can they see it. Sometimes then when, when you get when you start observing what you're used to, then sometimes what you're used to isn't really very nice, but you don't know it until you start reflecting and investigating. Like I found just in, just in my so much like anxiety and worry, is so much a, a, a continuous kind of mental state that I was so used to it. I just learned to, I mean, I just, just uh, I've become so used to, to that kind of worrying mind that uh, it, it didn't really seem like, I mean, I wasn't 
you know, life was pretty dreary, but one had become used to, to the dreariness of it. And then, then when, when I really started looking at it, I thought, this is horrible than your life. And this kind of continuous anxiety, worry, you know, I was creating it in my life. Then the reaction was to try to stop it, suppress it. And, uh, and that, then, it, then that made you even worry more, because it, no matter how much you tried to get rid of it, you, you never were successful. So that made you, you increase the worry. It's only through, the, through uh, investigating and recognizing and realizing that, that you, and understanding the nature of the mind, that you actually solve the problem. Change things at the right time. 